Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, as the Wagner Group capture military installations in Russian cities and its armoured columns come under fire as they rumble towards Moscow, we have the latest updates and analysis as Yevgeny Prigozhin launches an unprecedented coup against the Kremlin. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. In this special episode of Ukraine The Latest, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's 1pm British summertime on Saturday the 24th of June, one year and 120 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, and foreign correspondent James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Russia. Well, hi, David, and hello, everybody. So in an operation that's been characterised as a march for freedom, Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group has crossed into Russia from Ukraine and elsewhere and reportedly taken control of key security sites in two cities inside Russia, including the headquarters from which Russia is running the military operation in Ukraine. So first, Wagner is uh, on the streets of Rostov-on-Don with tanks and armoured personnel carriers and inside the Russian army headquarters in the city. So this is in southern Russia. We are 100 k's-ish east of Mariupol, about 80 kilometres east of the border, uh, just inland from the end of the Sea of Azov. So picture the Sea of Azov, which sort of tails into a point. That point then leads 20 kilometres inland. That's, that's Rostov. So Prigozhin says his fighters control the city's military sites, including an airfield. The base that they've taken control of in Rostov is the Russian military headquarters for the region and for the war. So images on social media show dozens of heavily armed soldiers around the Russian military headquarters. And on Telegram, Prigozhin said earlier this morning, we are inside the headquarters. It is 7.30 a.m. That was 5.30 London time. He says uh, military sites in Rostov, including an aerodrome, are under control. He said his troops will blockade the city and threatened to head to Moscow unless Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu and uh, the head of Russia's armed forces, General Valery Gerasimov, come to them. So Rostov is about 900 kilometres due south of Moscow. But the second city, Wagner troops are also thought to have taken control of all military sites in Voronezh, which is much closer. So, so we're now about 400 kilometres south of Moscow. Wagner says it was not stopped crossing the border from Ukraine into Russia, as Russian border guards were supposed to have done. They've had orders to stop, stop uh, Wagner moving in. Wagner also says they've been attacked by Russian forces. Prigozhin says he, he said that uh, 60 to 70 Russian soldiers have mutinied. And on Telegram again, he said fighting has been taking place in places where the military leadership gives false information to fighters and therefore skirmishes occur. Where soldiers meet us, the National Guard and the police, they wave their hands joyfully and many of them say, we want to go with you. Now, that last bit can't be independently confirmed at the moment about the soldiers changing sides. But the governor of Rostov region, Vasily Golubev, he has told people to stay at home and said... Law enforcement agencies are doing everything necessary to ensure the safety of residents of the area. I ask everyone to remain calm and not to leave your homes. British Defence Intelligence this morning in their daily tweet, they said 
Wagner units are moving north through Voronezh, uh, Voronezh Oblast. So again, as I said, this is about 400 kilometers south of Moscow. They continue, British Defence Intelligence continues, they're almost certainly aiming to get to Moscow. With very limited evidence of fighting between Wagner and Russian security forces, some have likely remained passive, acquiescing to Wagner. Over the coming hours, the loyalty of Russia's security forces and especially the Russian National Guard will be key to how the crisis plays out. This represents the most significant challenge to the Russian state in recent times. So that was the end of the UK defence intelligence update. Now, there are images on social media from credible sources that show an MI8 or possibly an MI35 aircraft reportedly shot down by Wagner as it attacked or having attacked members of the group. That was in an unspecified region. There are also images reportedly from the Voronezh region of either an Antonov AN-26 or Ilushin IL-18 transport aircraft, or it could have been an IL-22 communications aircraft that's shot down. The images are of this very, very large plane in flames crashing to the ground. There are also images of a Wagner convoy moving north towards Moscow on the M4 in uh, Lipetsk Oblast, that's north of Rostov, with T-90 tanks and BMP-2 infantry fighting vehicles on heavy equipment transporters. That's what you want. You don't want them going under their own steam because the track mileage is such that, uh, they, that they'll just break down. So you need them on heavy equipment transporters. And Reuters are reporting that Russian army helicopters have opened fire on a Wagner convoy on the M4 outside of Voronezh. I have seen images purporting to be that on social media, but I can't verify it just yet. Now, in an audio statement, allegedly by Prigozhin, we think we think it was, but unless you actually see who's actually speaking into the mic, you're never, never actually sure. But an audio statement this morning at just after 10 o'clock London time, allegedly by Prigozhin, uh, the speaker said, regarding the betrayal of the motherland, the president is deeply mistaken. We are patriots of our motherland. We fought and we are fighting all fighters of PMC Wagner. And no one is going to surrender to the demands of the president, FSB or anyone else. Because we don't want to, we don't want the country to live further in corruption, lies and bureaucracy. When we fought in Africa, we were told that we needed Africa and then they dumped it because they stole all the money that was meant to come for help. When we were told we were fighting in Ukraine, we went and fought but it turned out that the ammo, weapons, all money put towards this were also being stolen while officials are sitting and saving them for themselves for an incident that happened today when someone is going towards Moscow. Now they are not saying anything. They are striking us with planes and helicopters at the columns with civilians and they hit civilians because they are missing and they hit anywhere they can. Thus, we are the patriots, but those resisting us today are those who gathered around scumbags. End of quote by Mr. Allegedly by Mr. Prigozhin. So Russian state news agency RIA are saying that Russia's anti-terrorist committee met this morning and they are going to impose a counter-terrorist regime in Moscow and the surrounding region in response to the events. The committee said in order to prevent possible terrorist acts on the territory of the city of Moscow and the Moscow region, a counter-terrorism operation regime has been introduced. The Russian defence ministry has told the Wagner fighters that they have been, quote, deceived and dragged into a criminal adventure by Yevgeny Prigozhin and urged them to contact MOD representatives and those of law enforcement services promising to guarantee their security. That was from Reuters, that last bit. Putin made a televised address this morning, quite extraordinary address, called Wagner's actions an armed mutiny. He said he would do everything to protect Russia and that decisive action would be taken to stabilise the situation in Rostov. Now, I'm not going to read his statement in full. He veers off into history and Nazis and all the usual stuff trying to shore up support from the war. But some excerpts I have picked out. Uh, so Putin said, I appeal also to those who were deceptively pulled into the criminal adventure, pushed towards a serious crime of an armed mutiny. It's a strike in the back of our country and our people. He loves this narrative of being you know, stabbed in the back. It's a strike in the back of our country and our people. He likened the situation to post-First World War when he says political chevaliers of fortune and foreign powers divided the country and tore it into parts. So the usual stuff about you know, they're all against us. He carried on, we will not let this happen. We will protect our people and state from any threats, including internal betrayal. What we're facing is exactly internal betrayal. Extraordinary ambitions and personal interests led to treason. So I'm guessing he's fallen out with his old pal Yevgeny. He carried on, I repeat, any internal mutiny is a deadly threat to our state, to us as a nation. Our actions to defend the fatherland from such a threat will be brutal. 
Interestingly, he then said the situation remains difficult and the operation of civilian and military control departments is practically blocked. So, I mean, Putin created Yevgeny Prigozhin and Wagner, but they're now there is no coming back from this. But I'm not going to veer away into analysis yet. I'm just going to stick with the facts because it is it is so fast-paced at the moment. Just quickly, Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, he's always had a testy relationship with Prigozhin. He liked being outside the the mainstream Russian MOD fold, but he seemed he's always seemed to be a bit more reluctant to be as openly critical as Prigozhin. He made a statement this morning, the translation of which says, Friends, the night turned out to be difficult and the flights did not give time to voice here my position on this vile betrayal. Everything that is happening is a knife in the back and a real military coup. I have repeatedly warned that war is not the time to voice personal grievances and resolve disputes in our rear. The rear must always be calm and reliable. Have we not got enough losses in the SMO? That's obviously their uh, phraseology, special military operation. Do we need to create more problems inside the country? Do we have a supreme commander-in-chief elected by the people who knows the whole situation to the smallest detail better than any strategist and even more so a businessman? This is a direct dig at Prigozhin. Businessman calls the commanders on the ground personally and fully controls the course of the SMO. Vladimir Vladimirovich, that's Putin, quite rightly noted in his address to the nation, this is a military rebellion. There is no excuse for such actions. I fully support every word of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. So there's Kadyrov calling Wagner's actions destabilising, saying it's, it's Prigozhin's treacherous march, saying the rebellion must be crushed. And if this requires harsh measures, then we are ready. So, I mean, never never total bedfellows, but that's Wagner and the uh, Chechens now you know, taking opposite sides. Elsewhere, key members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, that's a CSTO, the sort of Russian-led group of the stands. Russia would like to portray that sort of NATO equivalent. It's not, but it's a collective security group, as the name suggests. Now, they are key members there reported to have refused to support Putin. According to Kazakh channels, Putin called various members, including President Lukashenko of Belarus and President Tokayev of Kazakhstan. Tokayev refused to support Putin. The Kazakh president is reported to have said that Prigozhin's rebellion is an internal matter for Russia. And Lukashenko, rather conveniently, is away in Turkey. And um, I guess, you know, please leave your message after the tone. Just to to wrap up, the UK government is going to hold an emergency COBRA meeting later today. COBRA is the Cabinet Office briefing rooms, but that's a big, big emergency meeting room in in, uh, Whitehall. Latvia has closed its border to Russia. The M4 road running north up to Moscow has apparently been closed by the authorities, as has all movement on the Moskva River, which runs through the capital. I'll take a pause there because I want a clean break between what we can report and then what we analyse. But I'll take a pause there, David. Thanks very much, Dom. Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? Would you be able to speak a little bit about the context, what's happening here, and um, talk a little bit also about Prigozhin's journey to this mutiny? The context, the context. The, the context for anyone who's been following Russia for a long time is, I, I almost can't put it into words. And this, this is this is the first time I can remember, I mean, since the kind of Chechen wars of the 1990s, like the first actual physical challenge to, to Vladimir Putin's authority. I mean, it's a clear attempt to mount a coup and it, it just breaks so many, so many assumptions, so, so many, many assumptions about Russia and, and how it works. And just to, so the immediate context before we get into Prigozhin and how he got here is there was always an assumption that when you see these kinds of, you know, antics, his, his, his denunciations of, of the Ministry of Defense, of Sergei Shoigu and, and Gerasimov and things like that, that it was all to a degree coordinated, that it was all to a degree simulcra, but also simply that it was convenient for Vladimir Putin to have this, you know, the threat of this guy to keep other guys in, in, in line and things like that. I mean, it, in, until, you know, as recently as yesterday, People were still saying, still convincing themselves, saying things like, look, he couldn't do this without the say-so of the man at the top. I'm sure this is some big game that, that Vladimir Putin is playing. And until this morning, until Vladimir Putin spoke this morning and said, no, this is a mutiny, I'm going to crush it. You know, Mr. Bogosian hadn't actually openly attacked Mr. Putin. So his journey to mutiny, I think, is probably going to be familiar to most people who followed the podcast. But let's start off with who he is. Um, 
Mr. Prigozhin is someone who has basically benefited from Vladimir Putin's patronage over the past two, two and a half decades. They're from the same city. He got his start in St. Petersburg in the 90s when Vladimir Putin was a deputy mayor of the city. By the time Vladimir Putin becomes president, he's already a very influential businessman there. He's running top restaurants. Vladimir Putin's bringing Jacques Chirac and George W. Bush to, to dine at his restaurants. And Prigozhin is, you know, getting all these state catering contracts, you know, schools, prisons, what have you, which was a sign of how well he was trusted. That that was the kind, that was how Vladimir Putin's Russia worked. I don't know, it it was a past tense yet. Um, Loyalty was rewarded. He wasn't a prominent figure. You know, he he wasn't, you know, no one really thought of him. Most people didn't even know he existed. But, you know, he, he wasn't considered to be one of these prominent power players who Vladimir Putin brought with him from St. Petersburg. But he was nonetheless considered someone you know, loyal enough and someone who understood how to make himself useful to the Kremlin as a whole, whole galaxy of people around the Kremlin who were like this. Um, and come 2014, of course, you know, he, he convinced Putin that he should make the Wagner Group. It's a deniable off the books mercenary group, fights in Donbass, goes on to fight in Syria and Libya and so on. But all of this is making himself useful to the Kremlin, being loyal. There's no question of him of him challenging the man at the top. And of course, when this war begins, he's kind of emerged from the shadows and he's, I think if you look at him, he's become, I think he's quite a vain man. And he'd, he'd obviously become very keen on the, on the publicity and the notoriety and so on. But it's really with the, the full scale invasion earlier this year, it becomes clear that he intends to use the war as a public platform for self-promotion. And then I think it's very interesting to me how he's got to this point where he's openly rebelling against the Kremlin. And I, I would guess, we don't know, but I, I would guess there's a few things that go into it. One is personal ambition. And it, it's been quite clear that he's had his eye on the defense ministry or something else. And he's been reaching out to Just Russia, which is a, a kind of tame, nominally oppositionally, but really Kremlin-controlled kind of center-left party in the Russian parliament. So he clearly had kind of political ambitions, but that didn't necessarily mean he wanted to displace the man at the top. I think something cracked around the Battle of Bakhmut because you'll remember how his his, his criticisms of uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov became more and more intense around that battle. And a part of it was clearly performative. Part of it was clearly, you know, attacking them so he could... It's probably a battle for influence, basically, a battle for the ear of Vladimir Putin which suited Vladimir Putin to a degree. But at some point, he seems to have lost it. And I do wonder whether whether he was psycholo- who would be psychologically up to it. That The kind of stuff he's been seeing and putting on his videos, piles and piles of dead bodies, just you know, daily involvement up to your elbows in the most atrocious, atrocious bloodshed, makes me think that part of this action is the act of a man who Maybe he has thought about it, but, but it almost seems to me like something that an act of desperation, because at the moment, I can't really see, well, no, I mean, it's too early to say, but I think the odds are stacked against this succeeding. And I can tell you why I think that, if you like. Please do. Um, okay, why do I think this is? Okay, so um, Vladimir Putin's Kremlin is meant to be coup-proofed. And the way he's, he's coup-proofed the Kremlin is the way that any sensible dictator would do it. Um, He has multiple competing agencies who are all mutually suspicious of each other, are all personally loyal to him and dependent upon him. And therefore, if any one outfit were to try something, the others would move in to stop it. So in no particular order, you have the the Roskvadia, the Russian National Guard, who who are meant to do this. They're meant to be an anti-coup, anti-internal insurrection kind of group. You have the FSB, of course, you have the armed forces, you have the FSO, that's the Federal Guard Service, who are responsible for Vladimir Putin's personal protection, and they're very powerful in their own right. And you have Ramzan Kadyrov, who, you know, runs his own kind of private army. Normally, his fighters are members of the armed forces or members of the interior ministry, but they're called Kadyrov, see their loyalty to him. So these are all power brokers, always have their eyes on one another. And the system is meant to be that if anybody was stupid enough to try this, it's going to get nipped in the bud. Now, the problem now is that a lot of those resources have been spent and exhausted in Ukraine. But nonetheless, you can see the system beginning to work. So the moment Prigozhin, you know, announces what he's doing, and it's obvious to everybody what it is. Last night, he started off with the classic line of saying, this is not a coup. 
as soon as you've got someone in military uniform telling you this is not a coup, it's a coup, <laughs> you know, kind of rule of international news reporting. Um, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov has come out and done what he's meant to do. He's stated his loyalty to Putin. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church has done that. The head of Crimea has done that. The head of many other regions have done that. I don't yet see where this collapse of morale, this this possible acquiescence to Wagner's advance is really going to come from. It's still a long way. I mean, you know, God knows it's early days, but that that thing that the British Defence Intelligence put in their tweet, the real test is about the loyalties of these things. The question is, is that system of coup proofing going to work? Are the agencies going to do what they're meant to do at this moment and say, hold on a second, we don't want him to be taking power. So whatever else, we're going to step in and stop him. And are they capable of doing that? That's that's the big question. And at the moment, I don't really know enough, but I, I haven't seen enough to convince me that this column, how many you know, tanks or guys they've got running up the M4, that they are going to have to be able to bash their way into Moscow unopposed. I still think that's a tall order. I still think that this is going to end up not like 1917, where the revolution succeeded. Soldiers came back from the front. We all know what happened. I suspect, I may be completely wrong, it will end up more like the 18th century Pugachev Rebellion or the Decembrists or, you know, the, the, the failed coup attempt in 1991. I mean, military coups in Russia do not have a great track record of success. Uh, and for the context, Pugachev was a, was a Cossack who rebelled against Catherine the Great in the regions. Um, Pushkin wrote a short story about it called The Captain's Daughter, which is quite good for the context. And, you know, the capital was terrified for, for a while, but he ended up in chains in a, in a cage. I think they burn him alive. The historians will know exactly what happened to him. It didn't end nicely. I suspect... I suspect Mr. Prigozhin is going to end that way, but I may be wrong. Thank you very much, uh, Roland, for that. Francis, I know you're pressed for time. Can I go to you next? What's your reaction to the news that we're seeing unfold in Russia? Well, thank you, David. This is certainly one of the most extraordinary moments of the war so far. Indeed, one of the most extraordinary moments of modern Russian history, I would argue, that the first direct threat posed to Putin's authority in decade, as Roland said, though there are important caveats to add to that. This is so far at least, very much an internal dispute within the Russian state apparatus. I would hesitate to use the word elite, since Prigozhin has no elite base. He is an outlier, an outsider, a maverick, really, albeit one who was helpful to the regime until he started to turn on the generals in the way we've described on the podcast for many weeks now. It's highly unlikely that there's going to be any sort of popular unrising, uprising within Russia that supports him. And I include much of the Russian army in that. Domestically, Russia is not fertile for revolution. Whilst Putin referenced 1917, in itself a striking admission of failure, as I've continued to stress, this is a very, very different kind of war to the First World War. In 1917, people were starving. The Germans, the Austrians, the Central Powers were delivering devastating defeats. Civil unrest was common on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg. From what I can tell, this morning, most of the population in those cities are treating this with bemusement, frankly. That said, whilst the fragility of 1917 is not present, this is still an extremely dangerous moment for Putin. The Russo-Japanese War of 1905, after all, was an imperialist conflict which failed and which acted as a catalyst for huge political unrest against the Tsar, which acted then as a conduit for all the problems in Russia at the time. Again, I would stress the tension is not there amongst the population now, which you could argue is a failure of the international response to this war. If Russia had been truly cut off economically by the sanctions, then this could be truly existential in the way that 1917 was for the regime. Nevertheless, dictators cannot afford to isolate their power base, their elite. This war has done that. And even if Prigozhin fails, then he articulates, I think, a frustration with the way the state has conducted this war. It was supposed to be, after all, a short military operation that lasted perhaps only a matter of days or weeks. Instead, it has lasted well over a year already and brought humiliation and severe consequences for elite practices. If Prigozhin is imprisoned or killed, 
then the frustrations he highlights will not go away. They will be funneled elsewhere, perhaps an internal political opponent. These things can be very hard to predict. The Kornilov affair, which was an attempted military coup by the commander-in-chief of the Russian army in September 1917 against the provisional government headed by Kerensky, fatally undermined the legitimacy of that new regime. It failed, but the biggest beneficiary of that was the Bolshevik party, who enjoyed a revival in support and strength in the wake of that failed coup. Kerensky released the Bolsheviks, who'd been arrested a few months earlier, and his plea to the Petrograd Soviet for support resulted in the rearmament of the Bolshevik military wing and the release of its political prisoners, including Trotsky, who proved vital for the destabilisation of the regime in the weeks and months that followed. Now, I think we're probably more likely to see a clampdown in this case as opposed to the opposite. But I mentioned the Kornilov example to show how it can sometimes bolster other threatening elements within the state that have been lying dormant. It is extremely ironic. Putin and the FSB were so focused on liquidating liberal dissent that they were blindsided by a revolt from the extremists, those who desire an escalation of this war. We have been saying for months on this podcast that the real threat to Putin came from this group, just as we've been saying that whenever one has private armies within a state, it can have a hugely destabilizing impact. It is one of the laws of history from ancient Rome to modern Sudan. One final thought on the strategic impact of this war. The timing is terrible for Putin. Perhaps the first time in many, many months, perhaps even the whole duration of the war, Putin had gained some control of the narrative following the slower-than-expected counteroffensive. No longer. This will serve as a huge morale boost for the Ukrainians and their Western allies. If I were Kyiv, I would strike now and strike hard on every front. The enemy is off balance, and Zelensky should aim to capitalise in every sphere, military, political, domestic. It is a maxim of war that enemies fighting internal battles rarely succeed abroad. And it also proves another rule we've been keen to emphasise on this podcast, that more victories are achieved historically just by holding on and waiting for circumstances to change than in huge turning points or huge set-piece battles that often draw the headlines. The only consistency in war is its fluidity. And if one could be adaptive, as we know the Ukrainians can be, then they have a huge advantage over a longer war. It also immediately asks us to reflect on Bakhmut again. Clearly, though I doubt this was the explicit intention, the value of bleeding Wagner dry there was worth it. It turned Brigosian against the regime. And the collapse of Wagner has huge impacts internationally as well. Not only in Ukraine, but at, from Africa, Mali, Syria, all those places where Wagner have strong bases it would mark the implosion of one of Russia's most effective global tools of influence. So there's a huge opportunity for the West there too to try and make gains in those areas where Russia has used Wagner as leverage internationally. So in short, this is a huge moment. Whatever happens now, if he so chose, Putin has an off-ramp in the war in Ukraine. He can say he was betrayed at home and has no choice but to pull out to protect his own state. I personally doubt he'll do that in the short term, but it is at least conceivable. He will do what he needs to survive. That is what dictators do. It feels at last, David, like the cracks are beginning to show. Thanks very much, Francis. Can I go to Natalia Vasilieva, our Russia correspondent? Natalia, you've been contacting some of these people on the ground in Rostov. What have you learnt about their experience? Hi, everyone. Yes, what a day, obviously. It's quite extraordinary because this is a Saturday, it's the middle of summer, and Trastov is known for being this happy-go-lucky place where people like to have fun. They go for the weekend to go swimming in the river and fishing. And a number of people I contacted, they completely shocked me by telling me that, you know, everything is fine, we're having a nice weekend, nothing to see here. Whereas some others sounded genuinely concerned. They, they sound worried because they, they feel that the, what they feared before finally happened, that the war has come to Russia, has come to their town. Some of them said that, you know, we were preparing for the worst. This is definitely not the worst. There's this one recurring thought that I keep hearing is that 
you know, of the residents because they have seen so much atrocities in Ukraine. They've seen Russia targeting civilians in Ukraine. There's, there's this idea that if the Kremlin really wants to take out Prigozhin, it wouldn't hesitate to target targets within Rostov, which would be which could entail civilian casualties, and um, if only they wanted to take him out. So um, the mood is quite tense. The whole city was basically walking up around at four or five when uh, either people people heard the rumbling of the tanks and armored vehicles out on the highways, or they heard helicopters. So it's pretty much there. I mean, from what I can gather, like all of the Wagner's presence seems to be concentrated in the center. On the other hand, we're seeing very concerning reports that Wagner has been laying mines outside the city. I saw videos and pictures that appear to be showing landmines um, lining the highways on the outskirts of the city, obviously showing that Wagner are preparing to hold the ground there, whatever it takes. Natalia, can I ask, um, what have you made so far of the official reaction in state media and, and Putin's speech as, as well? Do you think he looks in control? What do you make of it? I mean, first of all, such an underwhelming speech. I mean, we have seen Putin making different speeches throughout the war. And if there was a moment of crisis in the past 60, 60 months, that's the one. And I would say the general expectation was that he would announce, he would declare a martial law he would announce practical steps to put down the mutiny. Maybe he would say, I'm sending troops to uh, Rostov or whatever. It, it all sounded very underwhelming. He promised to crack down on the mutiny, but he didn't announce any steps. It was more like business as usual situation. Russian state media are quite curious. I just accidentally turned on uh, Russian state TV and, and saw this story by a state correspondent and apparently she's quite struggling how to report it how, how to cover it uh, because we all we see that there's quite a bit of a confusion about what's what's happening what's the good way to frame it and this correspondent was basically going around the streets sort of matter-of-factedly reporting traffic closures and public buses suspended, but sort of trying to portray, trying to bring in a sense of calm and saying that, you know, overall life in the city seems to be going on as normal as it could be. Thanks, Natalia. Just very quickly, The Telegraph, we re-topped our... uh, our live blog of the situation, Russian military helicopters have opened fire on a convoy of rebel mercenaries already more than halfway towards Moscow in a lightning advance after seizing a southern city overnight. Reuters has confirmed a Reuters journalist saw army helicopters open fire at an armed Wagner column that were advancing past the city of Voronezh with troop carriers and at least one tank on a flatbed truck. The city is more than halfway along the 680-mile highway from Rostov to Moscow. So that's the latest on our site. Natalia and Ronan, before we go to James, can I ask you, in the coming hours, the coming days, what, for those of us who are not so familiar with Russian politics and the way of doing things in Russia, what signs and events and what should we be looking for to help us make sense of the situation? Well, first of all, if, if I might say, we are uh, in a completely chartered territory. Putin has not faced any kind of opposition like that in all of his 23 years in power. And here we're talking about a military opposition. What remains to be seen, and I, I personally would love to see uh, liable figures on how many soldiers Prigozhin actually has, what, what is the actual military power he relies on. We already saw that the Kremlin has managed to gets everyone on board, every single regional official, top regional official has spoken in support of the Kremlin. But it, it's one thing to write this Telegram post saying that I'm with the president. Another question is to do something about it. And obviously what we've seen that, you know, Wagner troops were allowed to just roll into Rostov and, and roll on. Are they going to take any steps or not? We're seeing that at least on the political level, there doesn't seem to be any significant figure who would back Prigozhin, who would indicate intention to break the ranks, but we might be in a complete stalemate where Prigozhin will just hole up in Rostov or, or somewhere in that area. And Putin, it doesn't look like Putin. Putin is not the, the man to make compromises. We know it throughout the years. So we're facing quite an unprecedented stalemate, but that's, um, that's how I see it at the moment. Thank you very much, Natalia. Roland, anything from you or should we go to James? 
No, Natalia is absolutely right that this is completely uncharted territory, and all, all the rules and assumptions that we had about how the Kremlin works and things like they, they don't—they don't really in in this new environment. You know, we're kind of beyond the event horizon now. So there's theories about what should happen and loyalties within the Kremlin. Actually, they're being stress tested right now. I mean, I think some people were saying that. I think pro-Ukraine voices were saying Vladimir Putin's speech this morning looked like a, a cornered man. And so it didn't look like that to me at all. It looked like a man who was absolutely furious and intends to kill the guy who's gone against him. And I'm sure that's what he intends to do, whether he's got the ability to do that or not, whether, you know, that that is what it comes down to. And it, ultimately that comes down to the guys with the rifles. Right? It's 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 do do people follow orders? They're officers, obviously, but but where are these lawyers? these loyalties. Prigozhin seems to think the loyalties are with him. That's yet to play out. On the way to Moscow, I mean, you know, it's not an easy route. I mean, they're going to have to cross a river called the Okar. And we've already seen, you know, I mean, there's videos around of supposedly Russian special forces preparing to meet them there. So there are, there are physical logistical challenges involved in, in getting to Moscow. But I, I don't think there is any particular thing that you can look for now to tell you which way this is going to go and until there's there's a fight or something. I mean, I think either way, somebody's going to be eliminated by force at this point. Thank you very much, Natalia and Roland. Uh, James Kilner, can I come to you? You've written an analysis for The Telegraph. The headline is, Putin's aura of invincibility is shattered, and in Russia, weakness is terminal. What are your thoughts? Hi, David. I'm... Uh pretty shocked as uh, my colleagues Roland and Sasha, as Roland eloquently put it, all the assumptions that we had, and I think all of us have followed and report on Russia for 20 odd years, etc., have been completely ripped up. I was definitely in the camp that I thought uh, Prigozhin was playing by the rules and that he was doing as he's told and that he was likely to be rewarded with a cushy political job on, on the right right hand fringe of, of, of the system, etc. But uh, I've been pleased Proved completely wrong. He he wanted more, or he, or may, maybe as Rodin was saying, he he spun out and he's just gone for it. As far as the that analysis I wrote this morning is concerned, it really comes about because. So 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 I've been on this story since yesterday evening and afternoon, and and you could feel the tension building up with Prigozhin's increasingly angry statements about the war and about the losses that he's blamed on the Russian Ministry of Defence, and also about why he felt the war was prosecuted on a lie and why it was unnecessary. And and this was a departure. And then through the day, you could sort of feel the tension building, even remotely online and the comments, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly, uh, I'm, I'm in Tbilisi at the moment, Georgia, Sunday, 11 o'clock local time or thereabouts, these Wagner channels started reporting about take up arms, et cetera, et cetera. And this happened after Prigozhin also accused the Ministry of Defence of ordering an airstrike on, on one of his Wagner camps. And then he put out a rather, rather obscure video, which he said proved it, but most online analysts disagreed and the video is very poor. But then it took Putin, this was, this was really the trigger for this story that came around to it, took Putin about 12 hours to say anything from this moment. So there was a huge leadership gap. And I felt that um, uh, this really showed a man who was uh, t- totally taken by surprise, didn't know what to do, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Putin is known as a, a very cruel and callous man is also known as a, as a big diverer and an opportunistic diverer. And he clearly took 12 hours to put himself together. And then as Natasha said, he comes onto the, on, onto the Kremlin um, uh, video system, uh, puts out a six-minute broadcast, which I watched, and he looked absolutely shattered. He looked completely pale. He looked frail even. He gave this really odd speech that Natasha referenced. Talking about 1917 revolution, he was trying to pull his normal trick, where which he's been doing throughout the war, trying trying to rally people around him about supporting the motherland, that sort of thing, about how it's a huge distraction from from the Nazis in Ukraine and how, and the, the evil NATO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said the enemy within must be arrested and uh, brutally punished. He never actually mentioned Prigozhin, and he never 
he did mention the Wagner group, but not in a, a sort of, he didn't reference them as rebels. And I just felt there's built up uh, a really clear impression of a leader who's probably lost his grip. And knowing Russia, as I do, uh, have done for 20 years, the Russian people have already been asked to give up so much through Putin's misadventure and his opportunism and his, his callous disregard for life with his invasion of, of Ukraine. They've already been off sacrifice so much and it's gone so badly. And now they see him being openly challenged, which in the Russian societal diktat is a very important Rubicon that should never be crossed. Once it's been crossed, the person who's been challenged is more or less forever weakened. And I think that is what we're going to see here. Thanks, James. Dom, can I come back to you just quickly, just for some international updates on you know, what have countries around the world said and done in response to the news coming out of Russia? So in Ukraine, um, Mikhailo Podolyak, who's President Zelensky's uh, chief advisor, he says that everything is just beginning in Russia. Uh, he said, this is speaking on Twitter this morning, he said the split between the elites is obvious uh, agreeing and pretending that everything is settled won't work. Somebody must definitely lose either Prigozhin, and he says brackets with a fatal ending, or the collective anti-Prigozhin, uh, Putin's group. It then finishes off by saying everything is just beginning in Russia. Now, the US uh, reports are just coming out. Obviously, it's very, very uh, early in the morning there. Uh, Joe Biden has been brief, US officials say. Um, it's been described the situation is, is serious. White House National Security Council spokesman said, we are uh, monitoring the situation and we'll be consulting with allies and partners on the developments. US official told CNN the crisis was real, but that Pentagon and White House wait and see how it develops. Now, former CIA chief of Russia operations, a guy called Steve Hall, I think he was speaking to CNN as well. He said it's uh, this is... This situation is a different league to Prigozhin's previous complaints. Obviously, we've seen Prigozhin saying that the MOD was withholding artillery ammunition and other stuff in that fight for Bakhmut. But um, Mr. Hall says this is a this is a different league, and he says this might look like a well-known Putin tactic, where he turns on people against uh, so he turns people against each other in his own government. But this is a different league. Um, most worrisome for the Kremlin is, is Pogorizhin's promise, we're all going to march to Moscow. So, yeah, that's so US are just waking up there. I think, I mean, the, the response, I've been speaking to some some people who, who are uh, very well-known sort of Russia watchers, lived and worked in the country for a long time, and they're saying that, that everything hinges now on how quickly Putin can re-establish control. They said, Putin does this divide and conquer, divide and rule stuff. He likes the uh, the subordinates fighting together. And that's a fair tactic, you know, seen it in many, many places around the world. But you've got to be able to control that. You know, if, you, if you're going to have the lieutenants snipping and sniping, you've got to be able to exert control. This thing seems to have got out of control. And if he doesn't get it, get, get this back in the box quickly, then it could be very, very serious. Prigozhin has gone all in, but he does not have buy-in from the Duma, the Russian parliament. We know he's not a a sort of Kremlin insider. So whether or not this is just trying to show how incompetent the military is, we, we don't know. What will the power brokers behind Putin do? And uh, the, the, the big question is about the middle-ranking military. And by middle-ranking, I do I do include up to very senior officers, but but it's such as the Southern Military District Commander that Putin was seen, Prigozhin, so we're seeing alongside this morning in Rostov, in the grand scheme of things, that they are part of what I would describe as the mid, the middle bit of the Russian military. I mean, if they refuse to fire on Wagner as they stay in Rostov and Voronezh and, and elsewhere, then that is going to be very, very significant indeed. And one person I was speaking to, who knows Russia very, very well, said to me, um, "If we're still talking like this on Tuesday, it is a major, major situation." Gun battles on Russian territory are not what the Russian people have been brought into over this war. So I think that's, I think it's, the next hour is going to be absolutely crucial. There's all sorts of reporting out there that, that the government, the administration in Moscow have, have moved to St. Petersburg. That's unverified at the moment, but there's a number of reports suggesting there were flights out that way. No suggestions yet that Putin has done the same, although his presidential plane is reported to be in the air on various flight tracking websites. But I'm, I'm, verge, I'm veering into the speculative here. So I'll, I will stop there and just try and give you uh, what we are able to verify and sensible analysis. 
Thanks, Tom. Before we go to our final thoughts, then, can I just ask all of you for any thoughts you have on what this means for the war in Ukraine? I and mean, we've talked about these this advance on Moscow, the, uh, the firing on, on Russian on Wagner columns by the Russian military. What does this mean for the war being fought in Ukraine at the moment, James or Roland? At the moment, it, it, it's too early to, to tell. There's no there's no reporting from the Ukrainian side that suggests that the Russian front has collapsed or that you know combat sorties from the Russian side have have halted. But nonetheless, I, I, I can't see this as anything other than very bad news for the Russian side, to be absolutely honest. The other thing, I, I'm, I don't know, if you look at Prigozhin's kind of rhetoric, you know, and this, this all began kind of yesterday afternoon with him questioning the actual purpose of the war and saying it was all a, it's all nonsense and people are dying for nothing and things like this. And his rand is all talking about, as we were talking about earlier, you sent us to Africa and then you dropped that and, and you sent us to Ukraine. We thought that, you know, you're just stealing everything. The whole thing's pointless. I mean, I wonder, he's not a character who you would call anti-war by any, any measure. He's a, <laughs> he is who he is, right? Uh, he's a very bloodthirsty mercenary. But I wonder whether he is, he, if he is successful, whether he might seek to end the war as part of his power play. I don't know. And, uh, but the, again, you know, next few hours are crucial. We're all in the realm of speculation. But on the whole, in the immediate terms, I don't think right now there's an impact on operations at the front as far as we can see. Thanks, Roland. Uh, James Kilner. I, I think that's another interesting point Roland's made. I think if Prigorjan, who's a great communicator, has got great uh, rapport with his Wagner soldiers and, and apparently also a lot of support within the core base of, of, of the Russian army, if he can say, I want to end this bloodshed, we're all dying for, for no reason, then he might be on something. There was, a, there, there was actually a story yesterday afternoon, yesterday evening, I can't remember, from the, or it must have been late yesterday evening, from the Russian Ministry of Defense of all, of all sources, saying that the Ukrainians had stepped up their attacks, trying to take advantage of, of the coup, coup attempt by Prigozhin, and stepped up their attacks by moving a couple of marine units uh, to the front line north of Bakhmut. So although the Ukrainian side haven't commented, we've seen the Russian Min- uh, Ministry of Defense acknowledge that uh, the Ukrainians will try and take advantage of this uh, scenario in Russia. Thank you very much, Roland and James. Shall we move to our final thoughts then? Dom Nichols, why don't you go first? Yeah, thanks. So just a couple of things to watch out for over the next 48 hours. I would suggest we keep an eye on that border where the uh, the border incursions from, well, either from Ukraine or inside Russia, just to the sort of north of, of Kharkiv, that area in recent weeks that have been going on, these Russian dissident factions that we've seen, the, the Freedom of Russia, Legion, all that kind of stuff. Keep our eye on that. Uh, also, keep an eye on events in the in Ukraine itself and the the counteroffensive there. They might view this as a as an opportunity. I I doubt they will go too hard because actually the the fighting down there at the tactical level at the moment will be fairly divorced. I think from this news, I think it'll take a little while for the news and the implications to filter through to troops on the front line between before they and their commanders, their local commanders, decide what they're going to do. So actually, there might not be anything to gain by Ukraine really going hard now in the counteroffensive, but I wouldn't necessarily bet against it. The biggie is to see the first contact, real first, as in firefight between Russian troops and Wagner. Uh, if they're ordered to open fire, do they? What sides are they? This is the, the Russian troops and what's the what's the result of that? And then finally, let's have a keep an eye. How many, I don't know how many eyes you've got in your head, but let's keep another eye on Belarus. We know there's a lot of internal opposition there. Lukashenko is apparently out of the country in Turkey, so there might be uh, there might be some rumblings there. So to focus on what's happening on the M4 and more broadly as well would be my, what I'm going to be doing. Thank you very much, Don. Uh, James Kilner, would you like to go next? So, yeah, I think things, I mean, it's going to be a long night, another long night. I think things are moving at such a pace. So I, I, everything is, is is on the table. And I, and I suspect that this drive on Moscow is probably going to happen some, sometime overnight or in the early hours of tomorrow morning. And that is going to be a huge climax of, of, of events and how that plays out. And as Don was saying, if regular Russian army units, the National Guard, etc., refuse to engage Wagner mercenaries motivated and, and determined and battle-hardened Wagner mercenaries, then um, the Kremlin has a very serious situation. And 
Who knows? That that could be the end of the uh, the Kremlin presidency. But 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 we're definitely going to hear ourselves there. One other little news item that that's happened in the last twenty four hours: Putin rang around his various allies in the former Soviet Union uh, and slightly wider circle to try and get some some support. There wasn't a lot a lot of relay about the conversations, except from the Kazakhs, where um, Kasim Jomat Tokayev, the president, told Putin quite firmly that uh, he regarded. The coup is an internal Russian problem and that Kazakhstan couldn't spare any soldiers. Thank you very much, Dom, James, uh, Francis and Natalia. Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? Um, there, is, there is nothing that can be predicted at this point. Just w- whatever happens now is going to decide the future, or could decide the future of this war and, and the future of Putin's Russia. I mean... <laughs> I think, okay, this is this is hackneyed, but um, you know when you're talking about Russia, talking about the revolution in 1917 uh, that Lenin eventually took advantage of and managed to you know seize power. Lenin said, "Look, power is lying in the streets of St. Petersburg, waiting for somebody to pick it up." By which he meant, you know, there's all these people sitting around. What you need is a bunch of very determined guys with guns, and who are ready to go do stuff, kill people, get the job done, and power can be yours. I, I rather think that's what Yevgeny Prigozhin thinks as well. I think I think he's he's he thinks he's spotted a moment when power is lying around. You know, the army's been sent to Ukraine. Who is actually going to stop a very determined bunch of guys with guns who are willing to do this? Who are not talking about going out on the streets and and, and protesting the Kremlin or something, but are willing to you know get on tanks, drive up the M4, and um, and and carry out a coup. Uh, which brings us to another grim truism i think we've all known for a long time that vladimir putin is is you know he's not going to leave the kremlin until he dies he's a he's a president a dictator for life that's the reality and the other truism i think that you know it's been very very difficult to absolutely acknowledge and say yes that's the truth because everyone wants to think it can be done another way but probably the transfer of power is going to be quite bloody and i fear that's what we're about to see Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 